So off we go. If you like headings, here's the first one. Summary. Verse 1, Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he'd reigned over Israel for, four, oh, it says two years, doesn't it? 42 years he reigned overall over Israel. So what are we going to make of that kind of little introduction to the story that when he'd reigned for two years, something then happened? There's kind of an ambiguous beginning to this story. Nothing, if you like, in the summary that prepares us for the tragedy that's going to follow. Nothing that's going to prepare us for David's remarkable patience as he waits for God's promise to be fulfilled. Nothing really at this stage that uh, indicates Saul's heart is going to go so badly wrong. In other words, when the tragedy comes, it comes unexpectedly to us. So let's have a look at um, Saul and Jonathan. Uh, Saul and Jonathan, in the first half of this story, lose 80% of their troops. Do you see in verse 2? Saul has 2,000 men and uh, Jonathan has 1,000 with him. By verse 15, there are only 600 left. Uh, the rest have scattered and abandoned him. It's a bit like the Lib Dems or, or Labour in Scotland. You know, sympathy from some, but absolutely none from others. But it's very hard not to feel something for Saul. He's up against absolutely overwhelming odds and his men are afraid. Maybe at this stage he's trusting God to give them victory. We don't see inside his heart now. God didn't insist that he cut back the number of his troops the way he did earlier with Gideon. We're not sure why Saul sends the rest of his men home. It's very hard to tell what's going on in his heart. But you notice in verse 3, it's not Saul who attacks the enemy, it's Jonathan. And we'll see again in the next chapter how Jonathan trusts God, whatever the odds, and Jonathan consults God step by step through the story. So it's not going well so far for Saul. It's not going badly, but it's not going well either as we look at him and his son. It's Jonathan who takes action. Now we look at Saul and his soldiers. And in verse 4, you can see the best efforts of Saul's PR machine. Do you see in verse 4, all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And the truth is usually they say, don't they? The cliche says it's the first casualty in war. Saul is, if you like, finally now stirring. And he summons up his troops to follow Jonathan's attack and defend themselves against a counterattack. If we don't pause long enough on the story, we rush to today, we miss the fact that the story quite clearly says to us, Jonathan won the victory in verse 3, and Saul claims the credit in verse 4. Now, you see how the storyteller underlines the massive size of the Philistine army in verse 5, where we're told about their overwhelming technology. They've got these 30,000 chariots and horsemen, troops like sand on the seashore. And the, the reaction of Saul's soldiers is perfectly understandable. They hide. And meanwhile, Saul waits. And you see, he waits in verse 8 for seven days. It's not completely clear what he's waiting for. Perhaps he's waiting for Samuel to, to pray for them and consecrate them before they go into battle. Perhaps everybody knew that Samuel was supposed to be there for the feast, but in the end, Saul runs out of patience, and quite clearly Saul does what Samuel was supposed to do. End of verse 9, he offered the burnt offering. 
All I'm doing at this stage is just saying, what's the shape of the story? And scene by scene, what happens as we get into this story? What's going on in this story? We're just introducing ourselves to it. And then we have this remarkable encounter between Saul and Samuel. Just as Saul's finished, you know, the burnt offering is done, Samuel arrives. What have you done? asks Samuel. Do you remember somebody else asking that? Same question much earlier in the Bible story. God himself, do you remember, asks, what have you done when he finds Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes instead of coming out to meet him? We can so understand Saul's reply, can't we? Look at the way Saul responds in verse 11. My men were scattering. You were late. The enemy was on the move. I I hadn't prayed, so I, I, I did what you were supposed to do. And Samuel's account in verse 13, you've done a foolish thing. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. What will God do? He'll seek out a man after his own heart. And he'll appoint him as leader because you've not kept the Lord's command. Samuel's verdict might, might seem harsh to us. He says that uh, Saul has been foolish and disobedient. We may say, well, hang on, he's lost 80% of his troops. Uh, what, was, what was he supposed to do? He had lost a lot of troops, but he still has twice as many soldiers as Gideon had. When God gave Gideon an overwhelming victory against a massive enemy army, much larger than the one facing Saul. If we ask the question, what was Saul supposed to do? He was supposed to trust God, and he's failed to trust God. He was supposed to obey God, and he's chosen to disobey God. If you like, he's cracked under pressure, the very considerable pressure of his circumstances. And, and it seems that there's no way back for him from here on. The God who knows Saul's heart sees that this is going to prove typical of him. And so God is going to replace him with a key phrase, with a man after his own heart. And it'll take, if you like, the rest of David's lifetime for us to learn what a man after God's own heart is going to look like. David's songs and David's prayers speak to us from his heart and of his heart. He's going to turn out to be deeply flawed. Only the Lord Jesus ultimately will show us, and finally and fully, what a man after God's own heart looks like. The Lord Jesus, have you ever thought of him like this? Is a man after God's own heart without any flaw and without any failure. It's a lovely way to picture Jesus, a man after God's own heart. Well, the story goes on, Saul and his enemies. And if you look at what's happening there, his enemies are ranked against him and determined to destroy him. And as Saul goes into battle, what does Saul do as he goes into battle? He doesn't pray. Do you see that? And he says so. And when the uh, Lord Jesus goes into battle much later, how does he go into battle? Well, he certainly does pray. The, the last bit of the story shows us Saul's helplessness against this enemy. If you look in verse 17, there are three raiding parties. And the main garrison is on the move by the time we get to verse 23. Do you see that? The garrison of the Philistines go out to Michmash. And what's the point of this? Look in 19 to 22, we're told there were no blacksmiths among God's people. God's enemies had controlled all the supplies of metal, and so God's own people have only two swords between them. Everybody else has to go into battle with 
pitchforks and spades and agricultural instruments of one kind or another. Why should we know about that? Why should we care about that? Well, so that when God gives them victory through Jonathan in the next chapter, we'll see that God is able to save his people without even the most basic military technology. We've heard that these guys have got chariots up against two swords. It's a very uneven fight. Now, what I want you to do just for a second is to think about how does Hannah's song interpret this particular story. Take that favorite line that you had from Hannah's song earlier and see if you can set it alongside this particular part of the story. Can you do that for just a second? All right, if I give you a minute to do that. Choose your favorite line and put it alongside Saul and his struggles at this particular point. Give it a go and then we'll go on again and do the next bit together. Okay? Okay, I want to press on. I, I, I know that's frustrating. You're only just starting. But uh, I want to make sure your phrase is still working as you come to the story. We'll do it again in a minute. But move with me, if you would, from the stage, in your mind's eye, to the saviour. And I want to move uh, if, by doing this, by setting, if you like, the character and conduct of the man at the heart of this chapter alongside the character and the conduct of the central character on Good Friday. So you see where we're going from the story, via the story on stage with the song in the background. You've just done that work. And now we're coming to the saviour. And I'm going to compare and contrast Saul and the saviour that God has sent to us. And now you can see a remarkable set of comparisons to set alongside each other. As Saul goes into battle, do you notice his men scatter? As the Lord Jesus goes to the cross, what happens? All his followers, without exception, scatter and abandon him. But Saul still has 600 men with him as he goes into battle. As Saul goes into battle, he's one of only two men on his side who have a sword. As the Lord Jesus goes into battle against Satan and death, he has no weapons at all. As Saul goes into battle, he's facing an enemy, which is a great enemy, a terrifying enemy with massive technology. As the Lord Jesus goes to the cross, he faces murderous hostility from the Jewish authorities, the destructive power of the Roman army, and he's up against all the forces of evil who are ranked against him and determined to destroy him. As Saul goes into battle, he hasn't prayed, and he says so. Sorry, you can't really see red there, can you? But prayer and Gethsemane set alongside each other. As the Lord Jesus goes to the cross, he, pray, he has already prayed in utter agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Saul goes into battle, he disobeys God's word. He's offered a sacrifice, perhaps to secure God's presence with him, but certainly to get himself out of trouble. As the Lord Jesus goes to the cross, he goes in full obedience, and he is the sacrifice. As he goes to the cross, in a sense, he doesn't attempt to orchestrate God's presence to go with him. Instead, he surrenders himself to God, forsaking him. He allows himself to be abandoned by God in our place. And so as he goes to the cross, he does nothing to get himself out of trouble, Instead, he submits himself to destruction, 
to get us, to get us out of trouble. Do you see that? So if I ask you, who would you rather have as your king? It's not hard to answer the question, is it? Who would you rather have as your husband? King Saul, who started well enough, but turns out to be foolish and prayerless and disobedient. Or would you rather have the man after God's own heart, King David's, great King David's greatest son, King Jesus? That seems to me that's a, a great incentive and encouragement for us to thank God freshly for the Lord Jesus. And that the story of Saul's inadequacy shows us freshly the wonder of the Lord Jesus by contrast. And you wouldn't see stuff about Jesus that Saul reveals to us unless you travel deliberately from Saul to Jesus in the way I've just suggested. Do you see that? Would you have one little go back to your friend and back to, your, to, to, to the one you've been talking to just now? What's most striking about that move from the stage to the saviour? What struck you as we've just done that together? All right, have a go and talking about that just for a minute. Off you go. Okay, you're underway. Let me interrupt you again. I know how annoying it is to be interrupted again. But in my experience, if I want to, to express devotion to the Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord Jesus, you went alone. Thank you that you went unarmed. Thank you that you took on a greater enemy. Thank you that you won a greater victory. I find that I'm more able to do that having read Saul and seen Saul's inadequacy, which I recognize in the mirror, quite frankly. All of us do that. We can see our sin in Saul. But, but to move from Saul's sin to the wonder of the Savior, to me, is helpful. Uh, my heart is, is more able to say, I love you, Lord Jesus, through having seen Saul's Saul falling over. Do you, do you see that? And that's the point of the move that I want to help you to make and to practice making. Because we all of us read the Gospels and say, we love you, Lord Jesus. But actually, Lord Jesus says, go back at the altar and you'll see more. And by doing this this way, I hope you'll see that you can see more. And you can see more reasons to say thank you to the Lord Jesus as you look back to Saul's experience. Okay? So part of the point of this weekend is to practice doing this together. And to sort of see that you can do it. It's not difficult to do once I've shown you how to do it. But actually, it's something that's really precious to do if you go carefully through the stages that I've described to you. And then you won't make that horrible jump from Hannah to here, which can have such disastrous consequences in all of our lives. Okay? So one more practice and then lunch. All right? So let's go on. Let me offer you the wisdom of a very well-known bear. Okay? I hope this will be helpful. Uh, I quote, That buzzing sound means something. If there's a buzzing noise, someone's making a buzzing noise. And the only reason for making a buzzing noise that I know of is because you're a bee. And the, uh, the only reason for being a bee that I know of is making honey. And the only reason for making honey is so that I can eat it. <laughs> and so he began to climb the tree. You know how the story goes on. There's something delicious about honey straight from the comb, isn't there? That sort of special combination. Of, I'm sorry, it's nearly lunchtime. The, tastures, uh, the, uh, the textures and the tastes. Well, in the next chapter... There is a bitter moment when the sweetness of the honey that Jonathan tastes is turned sour by his father's foolish religiosity. So two headings before lunch. The bold realism of Jonathan's faith. All right. So the story starts with Jonathan's plan. And Jonathan's plan is private. 
in verse 1. He doesn't tell his father. He says to the young man who carries his armor, come on, let's go over and get that garrison on the other side. We're going to meet his father and the leaders in verses 2 and 3. So off goes Jonathan, verse 2. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah in a pomegranate cave at Migron. They've got 600 men with him, including a whole bunch of characters. Ah, but do you notice Ichabod's brother, son of Phineas, son of Eli? That doesn't sound too good, does it? He hasn't made a great appointment if someone's come from the house of Eli. That's his spiritual advisor. And everything that we hear about Eli's family earlier makes us wonder whether Saul is in spiritual difficulty if he's gone back to Eli's family, especially when God has shown what he thinks of Eli's family. Well, now the geography. Look in verse 4. Within the passes which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine uh, garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other was Senna. I don't have Hebrew, but uh, I can read the boffins. One side is called Slippery, the other side is called Thorny. All right, not promising. Not a great place for an attack. But here's Jonathan's plan. It's hatched in private, and it's done without reference to the leaders who have been rejected, and he's thinking of attacking in a place that's impossible. Do you see that? Slippery and Thorny. Well, verse 6 tells us the secret of Jonathan's success and the bold realism here of his faith. And I love the boldness and the realism. Okay, so verse six, uh, Jonathan said to the young, uh, verse six, that's right, to the young man who carried his armor, come, let's go over the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Do you see, he has confidence in God's power but he doesn't know the details of God's plan. God can do this. Maybe he'll do it for us. There's boldness and realism side by side. We don't know that he'll do it for us. Maybe he will. We know he's capable of it. And uh, Jonathan's faith knows that God's usual way of working is, is, well, by many or by few. But he's realistic enough to know that God may not and does not have to help him. And then step by step through the story, he seeks a kind of confrontation with the guys uh, at the top and confirmation from God that he's on the right track. And if we go up the story and up the cliff with him, as soon as they reach the top of the cliff, there's complete mayhem. There are bodies all around. It's clear that God is with him. God is on his side. God has given him a remarkable victory. Do you remember the famous uh, William Carey sermon at uh, Friar Lane Baptist Chapel in Nottingham in uh, May the 30th, 1792 from Isaiah? Two points that have been famous ever since. Do you remember the first one? Expect great things from God. And the second one, attempt great things for God. And off went the Baptist Missionary Society and William Carey to, to India with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ directly as a result of that word. If you like, there's a boldness and a realism to William Carey's faith that matches Jonathan's faith. It's practical, vital, personal, energetic. And God blesses him. On the other hand, Saul's faith is formal and inconsistent. Look in verse 18. He asks the priest there in verse 18 to bring the ark of God, the box where God's word was kept, to the battlefield. And the last people who did anything like that, if you know your one Samuel, were the leaders of Israel at the start of the story when they were led by the sons of Eli. And they treated the ark like a lucky charm. 
and God saw to it that they lost the battle and were killed. And the ark was taken into Philistine territory for a few months. Do you remember that? It goes off to Dagon and then is sent home again. If you haven't uh, read that, do have a read of it. So Saul's request for the ark looks like a mark of his own spiritual cluelessness. And in verse 19, he consults the priest, and maybe the priest is doing the, uh, uh, using the kind of device for finding God's will. But either way, whatever's happened, it's some sort of pocket in the tunic for finding God's will. But in the end, Saul is too impatient to wait for the priest to finish his prayers. And he says, look, time's up. We've got to get on with it. So I want to suggest to you that Paul appears to be a man who is praying when he should be taking action and taking action when he should be praying. And he's utterly inconsistent. And verse 23 summarizes this first part of the story. Do you see God saves his people in spite of Saul's inconsistent religiosity and in spite of Saul's failure to pay attention to God's word? And he does it because, well, he does it because the enemy soldiers uh, start killing each other. They kind of go into what we might call friendly fire and their mercenaries switch sides. And at this stage of the story, our storyteller, if we put him on stage for a minute, is comparing and contrasting Saul and his son. And we're being invited to compare Jonathan's faith with his father's faith. And to see how Jonathan's faith is personal and practical, vivid and vital and realistic and bold. And Saul's faith is formal. And Saul's religion, if you like, is formal. And he is clueless spiritually. And he ignores God's word and the history of God's people. And his faith is mixed with superstition, overwhelmed by impatience. There's a compare and a contrast, even within the chapter, between Saul and his son. So the main heading, a bold realism about Jonathan's faith. Nothing can stop God, says Jonathan, and maybe he'll help us. But the tragedy of the story is that, if you like, the sweet taste of a God-given victory is soured by the bitter taste of Saul's religiosity. And again, very quickly going through the story, we see the kind of military exhaustion that uh, Jonathan and the rest of the soldiers suffer. And then there's a ritual um, offense committed by the soldiers and then the virtual destruction of their savior. And all these problems were unnecessary and all caused by Saul's religiosity. Look in verse 24. We're told in verse 24 that the men of Israel were hard pressed that day in the previous chapter, they've been hard-pressed by their enemies. In this chapter, the people of God are distressed not by their enemies, but by the unreasonable and foolish restrictions that are imposed by their own king. What went wrong? Well, verse 24 explains. You see, Saul had said to them, he had said, he made the whole army swear an oath not to eat until he'd taken vengeance on his enemies. Now, Bible readers... No, that phrase sounds strange. You want to say, excuse me, Saul, doesn't God say vengeance is mine? Remember that? Throughout the Bible, God does say that. But here is the king who's begun to ignore what God says and pay more attention to what he says. And Jonathan hasn't heard about this oath, and he can't understand why the soldiers around him won't tuck in when he comes across this gorgeous honey in the forest. It was rare, it was 
It was delicious. It was just what they needed to restore their strength. And when he hears the reason for the restriction, he makes it clear he thinks it's ridiculous and foolish and damaging to their military capacity. So in verse 31, you can see they've struck down Philistines all that way from A to B, miles, but they're very exhausted. And because they're exhausted, they've traveled about 20 miles between those two places, chasing Philistines. They've had nothing to eat. They're starving. So they break the rules about draining blood. They can't wait. They just tuck straight into barbecue together. And in verse 33, do you see what Saul does? Saul insists on setting up an altar and making them wait for their food until the blood has run out of the meat. He wants to do everything by the book at this point in the day, but they wouldn't have been so desperately hungry if he hadn't put on them in such a foolish restriction in the first place. And the storyteller records Saul's next suggestion in verse 36. Do you see that? He says, oh, let's go down at night and plunder the Philistines till the morning light. Let's not leave a, a man of them. And they say to him, do whatever seems good to you. They're exhausted because of his foolish restriction. They've been fighting for the last 20 miles. And now without proper food, he wants them to go on and fight all night. The priest has an idea. Oh, why don't we ask God? And God's good idea, says the king, when he hadn't asked God, any earlier about anything that he'd been doing. And silence from God is not usually good. Do you see that? God says nothing in response to their question, asking. And then suddenly Saul immediately knows what to do. We must find the sinner, he says, and he swears an oath before God that even if the sinner turns out to be his own son, he must die. And all Saul's soldiers know about the honey. And they say nothing. And Saul separates himself from the soldier and his son from the rest of the soldiers so he can identify the sinner. And the soldiers must have said to him, well, you do best what you think is best, sir. And Saul prays and God identifies Jonathan. And Jonathan says, I tasted some honey on the end of a stick and now I must die. And Saul swears an oath in the name of God and says, oh, yes, you must certainly die. And at this point, the soldiers have had quite enough of Saul. And Jonathan's won the battle for them. Jonathan has rescued them. And they take an oath in the name of God. And they can see that what God has, Jonathan has done has been done with God's help. And so they save Jonathan from his father's anger. And everyone goes home at the end of the story. Saul goes home. The Philistines go home. And the next chapter records God's final rejection of Saul as king. And it's not hard to see why. What I want to show you is, as we just sit with the details of the story, we're doing this too quickly, is the storyteller himself is inviting us to compare and contrast the character of Saul and his son. Jonathan is practical. God has given him honey. Uh, at just the right time, in just the right place. And Jonathan receives God's good gift gratefully. And he protests at his father's foolishness in front of his soldiers. And he protests again to his father's own face. And all the soldiers can see that God has helped him. God has used Jonathan to save the people. And Saul, by this stage, is a disastrous leader. 
Before the day of battle begins, he imposes an unnecessary and unhelpful restriction on his own men. It was a kind of vanity. He ignores God's word. And then later he swears foolish oaths in God's name repeatedly. And everybody can see the results of his foolishness. He's made his own soldiers so weak, they're practically starving by the end of the day. He insists on a prayer meeting at the end of a full day's fighting before suggesting that they get up again and fight all night. He almost kills his own son, and he would have done if his own soldiers hadn't insisted that God must live. Now, I quote all this so that we can see clearly this chapter as an example of, of how we need to listen to the story carefully before we go to the stage to see what the storyteller is saying. See, the chapter like this one is not written to say to us, oh, let's not be like Saul, but let's be like Jonathan. Seems to me this particular chapter is an invitation to focus on faith, and at that point to set Saul and his son and their faith alongside the Lord Jesus and his faith. And so if you like, the, Saul, the, the flaws in Saul's faith and Saul's character are clear enough in this particular chapter so that each of Saul's flaws and failures shines fresh light on the perfection of the Lord Jesus. So we can't go by the direct route, but if we go carefully, we see the story is about Saul's very limited faith. Jonathan's much greater, more realistic faith. And as we do that, we can see the wonder of the faith of the Lord Jesus more plainly. Okay, let me show you what I mean by that. The Lord Jesus was never impatient, as Saul seems to have been. The Lord Jesus never said anything foolish, as Saul does repeatedly. I love that expression in Peter where Peter says, no deceit came out of his mouth. Isn't that remarkable? None at all, ever. The Lord Jesus never imposes on his followers any unnecessary restrictions, as Saul does so disastrously. And we can see that Jonathan is a greater believer, a more living, vibrant, realistic believer than his father. His faith is for real and God helps him. There is a great victory God gives to Jonathan here. But the Lord Jesus is far more impressive than Jonathan. The Lord Jesus walks by faith, step by step, towards his death. We could say the opposition he faced as we put him and Jonathan alongside each other, the obstacles he crossed were far more fearsome than slippery rocks or big thorn bushes. The Lord Jesus did more than fight a battle after crossing an impossible ravine. The Lord Jesus left the courts of heaven for a stable. He took on a greater enemy than a Philistine garrison. He fought skirmish after skirmish, day after day. And at the end, he took on all the powers of evil alone at the cross and was granted a greater victory, as we saw in that earlier chapter. He destroyed the power of death and Satan. And he prayed a far higher price even than Jonathan's physical exhaustion. But you can see his exhaustion at the cross. I thirst, he said in the way you can see Jonathan's exhaustion eating the honey. So what I want to suggest to you is that as we travel carefully looking at the details of a story, it's not difficult to see how the story then belongs on stage. And it's not hard then to move from seeing Saul and Jonathan contrasted at the point of their faith to the Lord Jesus and seeing 
with new light, new color, new texture, the glory of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we can come to ourselves and say, Lord Jesus, will you give us your faith? Will you help us to look beyond the bitterness of suffering that sometimes is ours in this world to the sweetness of that ultimate supper, the wedding supper of the Lamb? That's the sweetness that lies beyond the cross for the Lord Jesus. That's the sweetness that lies ultimately in the future for each of us through faith in him, sweeter even than honey fresh from the comb. One last job for you to do before we go to our lunch together. Pick that favourite line from Hannah and bring it to this particular chapter and tell me how does the song add colour to the story that we've just rushed through helter-skelter. Give it a go and then in two minutes' time we're going to have lunch. Okay, everybody, we're late for lunch, so we better go. Are we going to pray? Do we say thank you for lunch here? Yeah, I'll say thank you for lunch here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sweetness of the honey that you gave to Jonathan. We thank you for the prospect of that wedding supper of the Lamb. And we thank you for feeding us from your word. And we thank you for the prospect of food together now. In Jesus' name, amen.